Jasmine Donaghy is a writer. She's written a range of non-fiction and poetry, including the books Whose People, Israel, Wales and Palestine, Losing Israel, The Greatest Need, the story of Welsh-Jewish political activist in Palestine, Lily Tobias, and her latest book is a series of essays about the natural world with a thread running through of birds and watching them. Jasmine comes out as a bird watcher after exploring why she tries to distance herself from the stereotype. I hadn't expected much politics from a book about birds, but I was wrong. This book explores a variety of political angles. Let's start with sexism and misogyny. The title of the book, Birdsplaining, is a play on what many of us will be familiar with, and that's mansplaining. Can you explain what mansplaining is and why you chose this title for the book? Well, of course, mansplaining is back in the news again because the person about whom it was originally coined, the author of Men Explain Things to Me, has objected recently in a piece in The Guardian about it being diminished in some ways, the meaning of it becoming humorous. And she's concerned about the more serious aspect of mansplaining. And it's true that mansplaining as a term has perhaps become debased. My understanding of the term is that phenomenon where men offer uninvited purported expertise to women with the assumption a that women don't know and b that that information is going to be welcome in some way and of course the typical situation is where in fact a man is explaining something to a woman where she is in fact the expert so there is a power relationship there that I think is a very important element of all the various blame derivatives because there's a number of different derivatives from mansplaining that have occurred and and my use of the word birdsplaining is certainly a play on that. There's a particular tradition among birdwatchers, predominantly men. Birdwatching is predominantly a male pastime, certainly not exclusively, and it's changing. And there is a very strong tendency to explain to women what they ought to be looking at, what they're seeing, whether or not they happen to know. But I'm also trying to invert that meaning in this collection of linked essays, which is to say I'm trying to offer a different approach to sharing knowledge to sharing information that isn't presuming authority, but that is more reflective and questioning and uncertain. Through the medium of birds, I'm trying to find a different way of approaching how to share knowledge. Towards the end of the book, you provide an example where you felt an overwhelming need to explain and show your superior knowledge about birds. I thought that was a strong piece of reflection. Does this mean that mansplaining isn't something that only men do? And does class come into this at all? Well, mansplaining is something that men do, but splaining, that suffix, if you like, which can attach to white-splaining or goysplaining, non-Jews explaining to Jews what being Jewish means, white people explaining to black people what being black means or how black people ought to behave and so forth. I think the common element there is a power relationship. And so as far as mansplaining is concerned, it's something that men do. Not all men, of course, many men do. And it's the unconsciousness about the relative social position of the two people involved in that conversation and that pertains to all the derivatives, serious derivatives of mansplaining, i.e. whitesplaining and so forth. Does class come into it? I'm not sure that class comes into it, but certainly power comes into it. And I think in all of those situations, I think the reason that the term felt so immediately right and true and sort of plugged this hole that we didn't even know there was a hole to plug 
is because it captures so perfectly that power relationship and that can pertain in all sorts of social situations. Yes, and in that sense, I think it's something that working class people would be very aware of. Why is the naming of birds and how bird guides are written and illustrated a feminist issue? I'm not sure it so much is anymore, but one of the essays in the book is called Field Guides, in which I explore the experience of coming to realisation that the field guides that shaped me from childhood, came from a, a birdwatching family, so from early childhood, were very, very gendered. The illustrations and the text were very gendered. So the male species of the bird is foregrounded, is always in an upright position. The female of the species is often below the male. It's not fully illustrated. It might be partly obscured by the male. But anyway, it's the male is dominant. So obviously it reflects the values of the period. Those are bird books. Those are field guides from the from the 50s through the 70s. And I, when I realized this, it was a real shock to me. But of course, well, no surprise, because those, those social values pertained more widely, and it was predominantly men who wrote and illustrated those field guides. More recent field guides have changed. I mean, most of them are the male and the female are given an equal position visually and in the text. So in the text, also female birds in those older bird guides are described in relative terms, relative to the male. It's always a qualification of the male rather than in their own right, even when, in fact, that the female of the species, you know, in sexually dimorphic species, where the male and female differ from one another, even where the female's characteristics are actually brighter or larger or whatever. More recently, field guides tend to rely more on photographic illustration, and so the male and the female are, are portrayed more equally. But it, it's certainly true in the older bird guides. The politics of racism comes up quite a few times. Understanding how birds are named links to colonialism, the way in which black and brown people's involvement in research and cataloguing is erased, the fear, apprehension, hostility of a family out walking who thought you might have been a threat because your head was covered like a Muslim woman's head would have been, and of course your own lived experiences of racism and anti-Semitism. All of these instances in the book gives the reader a small insight into everyday racism. It's a big question as people who abhor racism in all its forms and want to build a world that's free of it. What can we do to correct historic and present racist wrongs? Well, it's interesting. I mean, it's, it feels like it's quite a pivotal moment. Things are really changing. So my own experience being a person of colour in rural space that is predominantly constructed as white, both in the literature and in popular perceptions and popular culture, it's really changing. So we, we see a lot more portrayal of people of colour, for example, in dramas that are set in rural locations. And there's an awareness among conservation organisations. So there's, there's an awareness of exclusion that not everybody experiences the same degree of access that there are different kinds of challenges for people of colour, for people with disabilities. And so conservation organisations are trying to redress that. So it really feels like there's a, a serious moment of change. And that's true also of naming conventions so that among birds, and this originated in the States, but it's also had an expression in the UK, then a recognition of the ways in which people with quite reprehensible views have been memorialised in the names of 
birds either that they so-called discovered, which is to say discovered for Western science, or they're named as an honorific in honor of their contribution, say, to ornithology, or basically because they're buddies with somebody who's in a position to name the bird. So there's been a quite a major response to that and a recognition that it's a problem in the States and increasingly in the UK that's being recognized. And there's an organization called Bird Names for Birds in the US. The Audubon Society in the US recently decided to change its name because Audubon's a slave owner. And these sorts of things are very much under discussion and being changed. So there is some of that historical wrong is being righted. Whether you have to go back and change every bird name and I assume this occurs among other aspects of the natural world and in science more generally in the biological sciences the life sciences whether you have to necessarily change the name or whether you acknowledge the problems of naming is still really up for debate but certainly acknowledging the kinds of attitudes for example, the person that I talk about in the book, H.P. Tristram, an English naturalist from Durham, who spent a lot of time in Palestine in the 19th century and really catalogued the birds of Palestine and is rightly recognised for an enormous contribution to ornithology, a huge figure in British ornithology, not just Palestinian birds, but ornithology generally. He's a major figure. He has really problematic attitudes. Should Tristram Starling no longer be called Tristram Starling? I'm not sure that that's the solution, but Denial of the problem is no answer either. So I think the more we talk about the colonial aspects of these naming conventions, the more we understand the really far-reaching impact of British imperialism, for example, and the kinds of unrecognised costs. We know some of the more immediate human ones, but the ways in which the natural world was plundered by naturalists. It's not something we tend to think about so much. No, that's true. The climate crisis forms part of the backdrop to the book. Your home has been flooded, bird numbers are impacted by change, your daughter lives in California and now has to live with regular devastating fires. How important is climate change politics to you and where would you place yourself on the hope versus despair scale? I think it's impossible to not be aware of and engage in some way with the climate crisis and with species extinction. It's a very difficult one to handle. I really understand, particularly for younger people, the, the, the level of distress and anxiety that it causes. And I think it is important. I think it's important to find ways to be hopeful and to feel like you can make a difference, because otherwise you just feel so you feel so disempowered and so disaffected and you just kind of turn away from it. So I think I know that there's a, a debate going on between the, as you say, that scale of despair or hope. I think individually, we're probably all of us moving back and forth along that spectrum all the time. And I think that's okay. I don't think you always have to be in super activist mode. I don't think you're in denial or in some way culpable if sometimes you just retreat from the fray and nurse your wounds a little bit. I think it's important to, for example, not feel knocked back when somebody tells you, well, your patch of nettles that you're letting grow for tortoiseshell butterflies doesn't make a damn bit of difference. Well, it does, because those few butterflies, yes, on a global scale, it doesn't make any difference. But then on a global scale, voting doesn't make any difference. It's the wrong message. I think each of us can act in small ways and cumulatively that does make a difference. 
at the same time, I think the kinds of things that we can do individually are peanuts compared to the kinds of things that need to happen in industry, socially, politically, at levels of decision making that, that we aren't as individuals able to participate in. So that's where I think it's very easy to feel overwhelmed and hopeless. And I think that's also the, the place to take what respite you can, because it's not going away. We have to find our ways of dealing with it individually. You're absolutely right. Governments and industry should be doing a lot more. And another of the things that we have to do more of is to conserve. We have to look after the nature that we've got. You've made some interesting observations about nature reserves. Can you tell us how nature reserves are chosen and why isn't the whole of Wales a nature reserve? I would have to preface any answer to that with a caveat, which is that I am no expert. I'm not a conservationist and I'm not a biologist. But as a member of the public, somebody who lives in a rural space, I'm very aware of how contested that space is. And we have contradictory demands on it. So in terms of how areas are chosen for conservation, yes, it's certainly been the case in the past that there's, or maybe there's, it's still true now, that there's an easier sell, if you like, to conserving some grand landscape or some very special, impressive species than, I don't know, trying to protect lichen, trying to protect slugs, trying to protect bog, none of which in the general perception are particularly romantic or particularly sexy. And yet it's those unsexy places and those unsexy species that in fact do all the bloody work. So increasingly, I think there is recognition of that. You know, how important bogs are, for example, as carbon sinks, as mitigation against flooding, how interfering with bog can cause downstream flooding, how re-establishing bog can decrease downstream flooding. So there is always a negotiation between immediate human needs and immediate human demands and political imperatives and longer term needs. And that negotiation is, is in constant flux. But I think one of the things that does seem to be happening with awareness of climate change and species loss is that we have to start thinking long term and obviously conserving space for the natural world or finding ways to live in better collaboration with other species needs is a long term plan and and has to involve long term thinking. I wanted to ask about this issue of fear. You look at fear, your own fear, following your experiences of domestic abuse, as well as the fear or sheer terror people can get when mountain climbing or carrying out similar pursuits. It's an interesting emotion which can be a dangerous one in politics. What can we learn from the way in which people's fears can be manipulated politically, do you think? And how can we counter the politics of fear? Well, I think understanding how fear operates at an individual level and acknowledging how we experience fear will help us resist being manipulated in that way. As far as resisting the politics of fear and the manipulation of the public, I think we all need to understand the fears that people experience and understandably experience that make make us subject to that manipulation. And part of that understanding, I think, is taking a conflict resolution approach to 
what are contested narratives, what are contested situations. And that relies, in my view, and certainly in my experience with domestic violence, that relies on acknowledging the other. It doesn't mean accepting the other. It doesn't mean agreeing with the other. But in a situation of conflict, you've got two people with needs, with feelings. And until you acknowledge and understand one another, you can't resolve anything and you can't move on. So I think moving away from the either or good person, bad person, these binaries of how we talk about what's appropriate behavior, how we talk about things on a global scale and a, and a microscopic scale. I think the more that we can find ways to understand that there can be mutually exclusive perceptions of things, that doesn't make somebody right or wrong, that they have a different experience that their fears are different from your fears. And until you can accept that that person is genuinely experiencing what they're feeling, you can't really understand or hope to change things. So yeah, I think my take on it is very much a, a conflict resolution take, which is which has got to be based on mutual respect. I think that's a very useful insight, especially when there's so much conflict and so much political polarization all around us. Jasmine, you've been a great guest. I really enjoyed reading your book. Diolch. Thank you for joining me. Diolch. I'd like to say Diolch to those who have helped me with this project. Diolch to the team at Audacity, the open source audio editing software used to make this podcast. Diolch to Nick James for the artwork. Diolch to Clewen Stefan, the creator of the music. And finally, Diolch to all the podcast support and subscribers. I'm grateful to all of you. I'm looking for support to continue to make these podcasts. You can become a supporting subscriber by checking out my Patreon page. You have been listening to the Leanne Wood Podcast. Podcast.